I think uh, I have a little bit of a different worship experience than you guys do on Sunday mornings because I know what's coming. You know, Chad, I, on Thursday afternoon, I usually send out whatever I've got on my sermon so far to Chad, and then he looks through it and sort of formulates the worship set so it kind of lines up with the message. And so as I'm singing, I'm, I'm hearing what's coming in the Word of God. I wish maybe we could do that more often. If it wasn't for, like, kids and timing with downstairs, we would probably spend, do a little word up front and then a little more worship afterwards, responding to what God's Word has for us. Today we'll get to respond with communion, so I'm excited about that. If you have your Bibles, turn with uh, me, with us, to Romans chapter 6. If you remember last week, we mentioned how Romans chapters 1 through 5 Uh, Paul has explained really the theology of the gospel, what it is, why we need it, and how we receive it. But now in chapters 6 through 8, he turns to how we, how Christians, experience the gospel. This is in many ways the heart of the book of Romans. This is where we find the the doctrinal or or biblical truth of, of who we truly are in Jesus Christ. This is uh, truth that when believed and when acted upon will impact who you are and how you live. This is the section of the Bible that I find myself turning to again and again for study and for, for meditation. This is where I find inspiration and instruction and encouragement. Encouragement and in, in how to live the Christian life. This is where I come to face to face with, with who I am. In Christ, And it's my hope and it's my prayer that over the next several weeks and months as we're in this, this three-chapter section, as we continue to walk through these glorious chapters, that God will use them in mighty ways. That the truths found here in His Word will be embedded uh, deep in our souls. That each of us will, will see and experience not just who God has called us to be, this thing we're striving for, but who God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. And armed with this truth and our our ability, it's my prayer that our ability to fight against sin and live for God, to be dead to sin and alive to God, will blossom and grow as never before. Amen? Now if you remember, if you remember, no, if you remember, Uh, Chapter 6 begins with a question. The question comes in response to what Paul wrote at the end of chapter 5 in verse 20. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The gospel says that we are all sinners and therefore will receive the wrath of God, but that we can be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that our efforts to obey the law to do good works, have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation, with our justification before God. Therefore, it's true that the more we sin and the more uh, sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that more grace will abound. This is just the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the gospel of grace. But for some, it causes... uh, them to go down a path, maybe a, a, well, definitely a wrong path. It raises a question, and that's the question Paul begins with in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
If increased sin means increased grace, then should we continue to sin that grace may be more? There should be more grace. And Paul's immediate answer, we saw this last week, emphatic answer is by no means. Even though it's true that increased sin means increased grace, no way we should use this as an excuse to continue in sin. And so what follows from, chapter, from verse 2 on, from the second part of verse 2 on in chapter 6, is Paul reasoning, his reasoning for this answer of by no means. And what we saw last week and will continue to see this week is that at the heart of Paul's argument, his reason is the mind-blowing gospel truth that we are united with Christ. Of all the truths of Scripture, this is possibly the one we need the most and understand the least. Last week, I illustrated our union with Christ by comparing it to being in an airplane. When you're in an airplane, what happens to the plane happens to you. Another way to illustrate our union with Christ is to think about an actual labor union. When I was in college, I worked for uh, Stater Brothers. I was a grocery clerk, and I was part of the grocery clerk's union. And not once did I negotiate for a raise or for benefits. But over the years, I got several raises. I got increased benefits. I did nothing. But because I was in the union, and the union negotiated for me, I got what they got. And in a similar way, in the Christian life, we do nothing to get the benefits we receive. Justification and salvation and redemption and adoption and sanctification even and eternal life. We do nothing to get these benefits. But because we are in union with Christ, who did everything we get everything as well. Because of our union with Christ, I'm going to repeat this a number of times. I mean, not right here, but throughout the message. Because of our union with Christ, what happens to Christ happens to us. Because of your union with Christ, what happens to Christ happens to you. And and this is not only a doctrinal truth. Our union with Christ has an actual effect on who we are. We're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because of our union with Christ. Because what happens to Christ happens to us. Last week we saw two ways in which this transformation takes place. First, our union with Christ results in our death to sin. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.2 says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Christ died for our sin. Christ died to sin. Christ took our sin and He overcame it. In His death, He won the victory over sin. And, and therefore, those who are united with Christ died to sin. Which means we are no longer under the authority. We're no longer under the control. Sin does not reign and rule over us. The power of sin that we once experienced in our lives, has been broken by the death of Jesus Christ. And whatever happens to Christ, happens to us. We died with Christ, therefore we died to the authority and the control of sin in our lives. So first, last week we saw our union with Christ results in our death to sin. We'll talk more about that this week. And second, we saw our union with Christ is responsible for our new life. Again, Paul sort of 
he's, he's sort of repeating himself and adding to it as we go. So you'll hear these themes again. But in Romans 6.4, he wrote, we, are, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We not only died and were buried with Christ, but we were raised with Him. Why? In order that we, like Christ, might walk in newness of life. We might experience this new life. And so because we are united with Christ in His death, we died to sin. Sin has lost its authority, its power, its control in our lives. And because we are united with Christ in His resurrection... We've been given a new life in Christ. We walk in newness of life. We, we, are, we are be, have been and are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Therefore, Paul's reasoning is that by no means it's ridiculous to think that we who died to sin and have a, a new life in Christ would continue to live in our old sinful ways, in our old sinful life. And so that's the summary of what we saw last week, verses 1 through 4. Now today, verses 5 through 11, Paul continues to show this, the ridiculous nature of thinking that we, those who are united to Christ, are to continue in sin, that grace may abound. He wants us to understand and to, uh, get this word, and to internalize, okay? He wants us to understand in our heads and internalize, take it down to our heart, to who we are, our union with Christ. He wants us to get it. Because he knows that, that doctrinal truth, biblical doctrinal truth, has little to no effect when it's only experienced up here as an intellectual exercise. But that when it's taken to heart, truly believed and acted upon, that doctrinal truth will greatly impact our lives. It'll impact our character. It'll impact our behavior, who we are. And so Paul continues to give us even greater insight into our, our, this union with Christ, that we're in Christ, that we're united with Christ. He wants us to first know our union with Christ means certain resurrection. That's our first point this morning. In verses 3 and 4, Paul spoke of our union in terms of of baptism. We're baptized or immersed into Christ. We're baptized into the death of Christ. And in verse 5, he definitively states this union. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That word united in the Greek literally means grown together. It describes plants that are connected Branches that are connected. We, those who are saved by grace through faith, are grown together. Maybe grafted in could be used here uh, with Christ. So what happens to Christ happens to us. Paul's restating our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And his emphasis is that if we are united to Christ in his death, If you, by faith, have trusted in the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the the payment, for your justification, for your salvation, what Paul wants you to know and believe and live based on is that because you're united to Christ in His death, you can be certain, you can have assurance that you too, like Christ, will be resurrected. Just as you died with Him, you will be resurrected 
raised again with Him. You will be resurrected with Him. Do you believe that? Do you? Are you certain that your physical death is not your end? That your death is only a a gateway into a new and, and eternal life with Jesus Christ? Is that what you believe? Does that give you hope? Because if it does, if that's what you believe, then your life will be impacted. This doctrinal truth will impact how you live. You will live differently than someone that doesn't believe that. If you have a certain hope in your resurrection, then the things of this world will become less and less important as you hope in your resurrection, as you think about your eternal life. I know for me, I can sometimes get enamored with uh, the here and the now. I live as if this is it. Instead of looking forward to to my eternal life. So just let me take a minute and share with you. This is a little bit of a diversion, but I I think it's good. Share with you something that, that helps me to keep that eternal perspective. To live based on my certain resurrection. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful here. If you picture a, a, a line, a, a string, a, a long string, maybe I'm not going to, I don't have one with me, maybe I should, but uh, we've done that before. And picture this line maybe starting around here and it goes out the door and it just continues on and on and on. For all eternity, it's, it's infinite, so to speak. It goes on. That's a picture uh, of eternity, the length of it. Now picture a a dot. Take out a a pencil or a a pen and just mark a little dot on that line. That's your life. That's my life. And the question is, are we living for the dot or are we living for the line? We spend way too much time thinking about the now and not the later. We plan elaborate vacations and spend lots of money on stuff to make this life great. But we think very little about the rest of the line, which is eternity. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our purpose is not to store up treasures in the here and now. Our life is not about making ourselves comfortable in the dot. God didn't put us here to eat, drink, and be merry, to waste our time and money on frivolous things. He put us here for this short time, united us with His Son, Jesus Christ, that we might glorify Him and that we might live not for temporal pleasures, but for Christ's eternal purposes. Which means... Caring for people, loving your neighbor as yourself, serving and, and sh- serving and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with, with people in your lives, and being part of the gospel going to the ends of the earth where it's never been heard before. So let's not waste our lives doing going after the things of this world, but united with Christ, with our hope in our certain resurrection. Let's live our lives now for the glory of God. 
for the eternal purposes of Jesus Christ. Now, for us to do that, we need to be transformed. It's not natural. Naturally, we want stuff. Naturally, we want to be comfortable. Naturally, we don't want to sacrifice. Naturally, we're all about me. I mean, you are about you, and I'm about me. That's our natural inclinations. But we can be transformed. Our minds and hearts must be changed by God. We must become more like uh, the one we are united with, Jesus Christ. We must value the eternal above the temporal. We must value God's will and ways and His glory above our own pleasure. And I think what follows in Romans 6 if believed and acted upon, will take us a long way in our transformation to becoming more like Christ. Paul goes on in verses 6-10 through to describe two two more truths about our union with Christ. Again, there's some overlap here. But these two truths about who we are in Christ should help give us that greater and eternal perspective. He begins by saying, our union with Christ Jesus, with Christ means freedom from sin. Okay, we're dead to sin, and now on top of that, we're freed from sin. Verse 6, this is what took place when we were united with Christ in his death. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self is who we were before our union with Christ, before our conversion, when we were uh, slaves to sin, when sin was our master. And Paul says the old self was crucified with Christ. It's dead and it's gone. For what purpose? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified. We were united with Christ in his death, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, what does Paul mean by the body of sin? Some think it refers to the flesh or sin nature. Some think it, it refers even back to our old self. But these are really two different things, the old, your old self and your body of sin. Later in verse 12, Paul writes, let not sin reign. This is to believers. Let not sin reign. This is what we're going to talk about next week, by the way. Let not, and I'm excited about that, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Same word, body, to make you obey its passions. Sin can reign and rule in our actual physical mortal bodies, even now. So it seems the body of sin is referring to our physical bodies when we allow it to be controlled by sin. Sin comes from the heart, but it expresses itself through our bodies, through our hands and our feet and our words. It reigns in our mortal bodies by getting our bodies to obey its sinful desires. So when our old self is crucified with Christ, then a change can take place. A change that affects who we are and what we do with our bodies. Our bodies, our actions are no longer under the uh, authority of sin. Our body of sin is brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This word uh, enslaved is is a really strong word. It means to be in bondage. Sin is your master. It's who you must obey. As we talked about last week, prior to our salvation, prior to being united with Christ, we were under the authority and control of sin. We had no choice but to submit to sin, 
to our, to our sinful desires, to our temptations. We were literally enslaved to sin. But because of our union with Christ in His death, our old self is crucified. Our body of sin is done away with, and we are no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer must bow down at the altar of sin. In verse 7, Paul makes this really clear. For, for one who has died has been set free from sin. In verse 2, Paul said we are died to sin. Now he says that because we are united with Christ in His death, we died. Our old self was crucified with Christ. And this implies that our new self, who we truly are in Christ, is set free. It's set free to, to live a, a completely different life. A life that's not ruled by sin, but a life that's ruled by Christ. Now again, we talked about this last week, but again, this doesn't mean we will never sin. It doesn't mean that sin is gone. It means that we are set free to never have to submit to the authority of sin in our lives. Sin is no longer our master. You've been changed through your union with Christ. The old self has died, and by God's power and grace, you've received a new self. And your new self actually, really desires to be in relationship with God. You've been awakened to God. You are coming alive to God. Your new self desires to glorify God and live for the purposes of Jesus Christ. But sin still remains in you and around you. It no longer controls your personality and your life and your body and your behavior, but it can still lead you into disobedience to God. It can lead you away from God's glory and His purposes. However, sin is not in complete control. There is now a battle that rages in your life. A battle between your new self and sin, if you will. If you've been united with Christ in His death, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Before you sin, as you're being temptated, I love to make up words, especially these serious times. When you're being tempted, you experience turmoil in your heart and your mind. There's a fight. There's a battle against sin. It wages. The, the, the new you is crying out against the sin you're tempted by. And there are times, and, and hopefully these times are increasing when you listen to the true new you. The self that's been given freedom from sin. But even when you don't listen, even when you fall to sin, your new self in Christ is still there. And in combination with the Holy Spirit, I think it's the, this new self that the Holy Spirit can now talk to. It brings conviction and, and draws you to repentance. This is the difference between those who are united with Christ and those who are not. The difference is not that one sins and one doesn't. The difference is that uh, the one who is not united with Christ, who is enslaved to sin, will simply continue in their sin. No fight. But the one who's united to Christ, who's free from the control of sin, will fight, will repent when they sin and return to Christ, will ask for forgiveness, will ask for and receive the power to fight against uh, the sin 
in the future. And I pray for all of us that increasingly this would be our experience, that, that we're fighting and overcoming the sin in our lives. John Owen, an old Puritan guy, said this. He said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. It's a fight. You're dead to sin, but you still have to fight against sin. Because we are united with Christ, we've been set free from sin, which means we've been set free from sin as our as our master, as our controller. And there's more. Our union with Christ, this is our third point, means victory over death. This reinforces what we saw in our first point last week. Our resurrection, no, this week. Our resurrection is certain because in Christ Jesus, we have victory over death. Romans 6.8. Now, if, if, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We believe, we know uh, there's power in how you think, and that will become more and more apparent. We know that the power of Christ's resurrection is triumphed over death. Paul's logic is that if we know that we, we died when Christ died in our past, then we can believe that we will live with Him in the future. How can we be certain? Verse 9, because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Because Jesus defeated death. He was raised from the dead to eternal life. He will never die again. Death has absolutely no dominion, no claim or power or authority over Christ. And since that is true of Christ... It's true of us because we're united with Him. In Christ, we can, be, we, can, we can be certain of our resurrection because we have victory over death. Then in verse 10, Paul summarizes what he's talked about really from verses 5 to 9. He summarizes our union with Christ's death and life. He says, For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Our union with Christ is described in in that phrase, once for all. The all is us. We're part of the all. This phrase emphasizes the finished work of Christ. When, When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, it was finished. It's a done deal. Jesus died to sin once for all. And therefore, we all who are united with Him died to sin. We do not have to submit to the power and the authority of sin. And we will not be subject to eternal death. We will, like Christ, be raised from the dead to live in God's presence for all eternity. These are the facts. But we don't need to wait for eternity. We today can experience the gospel. We can experience our union with Christ. We today, like Christ, can live to God. Really another living for God, living for God's purposes. And in fact, that's what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Those who are united to Christ will live to God, live for God, live for God's glory and for His purposes. And yet we still struggle with sin. We don't always live to God's glory for God, for His purposes. We still struggle to live live for the line and not for the dot. 
We struggle to experience the reality of our death to sin, of our freedom from sin. We struggle to experience the reality of our new life in Jesus Christ. They may struggle to experience this reality. And why is that? And how do we fight? How do we win that struggle against the sin that continues to pop its head up in our lives? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 11. He says, our union with Christ must be reckoned. We'll we'll talk about that word. In Romans 6.11, Paul says, uh, so you also, so this is following, this is all the truth, this is all truth, You're, you're dead to sin, you're alive to God, you're in Christ, so here's what you do. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Greek word uh, translated considered in the ESV is translated reckon in the King James. And, and I've always liked the word reckon because it's, it's more than just thinking about. It's more than just considering. This word consider or reckon is the, the Greek word logizomai. It's one of the most important words in the book of Romans. Paul uses it 19 times in 16 chapters. And if you don't know what it means, then you won't really understand Romans. We've looked at it several times already. For example, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, we read, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That word counted is the same word. It means to, to, to credit or to count, to, to reckon to one's account. When Abraham believed God, his account was credited with righteousness. That didn't mean that Abraham would always behave, and he didn't always behave, in a righteous manner. But it meant that he, excuse me, by faith, he was counted righteous by God. He became technically and legally righteous. And in the same way, Paul says, so you also must consider, reckon yourselves, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It may not seem that we are always dead to sin and alive to God. But because we are united with Christ, because we're in Christ, because what happens to Christ happens to us, because Christ is dead to sin and alive to God, we must consider, reckon, that we are technically and legally dead to sin and alive to God. I would say a practical definition for this word is this. To reckon means to believe and to act based on that belief. And in this case, the belief, the truth that you are to believe and act upon is that because you are in Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Now, how does reckoning, how does considering or believing something that's true help? Or why must we reckon ourselves uh, uh, to be something that's already true about us? It's already true. It's a done deal. In Christ, you're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Well, it's kind of like a privilege or a legal right. Though it may be true, or, or it may be in force, a person may not understand or act upon their right or privilege. There's something that's true about you, and you need to reckon it so. For example, you may have a a trust fund. I don't. If you do, let me know. Just kidding. 
You may have a trust fund that's put in your name. But unless you draw on it, it won't change your actual financial condition. The trust fund should mean the end of your financial troubles. But it won't have an effect unless it's used. So you must consider, reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because unless we act upon this great privilege, it will not automatically be realized in our daily experience. It's when we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God that we will begin to act dead to sin and alive to God. Now you might think that this sounds like uh, the power of positive thinking. If I believe something is true, whether it is or not, then I can make it true in my life. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. What Paul is talking about is reckoning or believing something that is already absolutely true. That the Word of God says is true. Something that God's Word declares to be a fact. If you're a Christian, if you are united with Christ, then I tell you with confidence, based on the Word of God, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Paul is saying, now reckon this reality in your life. Because reckoning matters. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, if you don't know, like wrote 16 volumes on the book of Romans, so he was a little bit in tune with it. He gave this illustration that can help us understand the importance of reckoning. He writes, take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America. So Jones was British, so he's writing from there. There they were in the condition of slavery. Then the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War came. And as a result, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom. They were legally free. But many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but many of them did not realize it. They didn't reckon it so. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and to tremble. They began to wonder whether they were going to be sold again. You can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through His Word that if we are in Christ, we are not slaves to sin. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, if I sin as I do, it's simply because I do not realize I am not acting based on who I truly am in Christ. Consider, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever taken the time, and it's worth doing, to consider the fact that you participated in the events of the cross? That that you participated in what we will remember and celebrate here this morning through communion. That in Christ, you died. Have you ever meditated on that fact? That despite your experience, you're dead to sin and alive to God. Have you ever sought to internalize the truth that sin actually has no power in 
my life. That you've been given a new life in Jesus Christ. This is called a prevention theology. So much of our time is spent in corrective theology. What to do when or after we sin. Most of us are familiar with 1 John uh, 1.9. We confess our sins. He's, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We call on that all the time, right? This is good and necessary after we've sinned. But reckoning, uh, counting on your union with Christ is better because it transforms our hearts and prevents our sinning. This reckoning on what is true about us is something we should be doing constantly. In Romans 6.11, the verb consider or reckon is the, the present imperative tense. We could translate Romans 6.11, so you also must keep on considering yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. My, my wife, uh, Christina, is helping down in the preschool today. So yesterday I was sharing with her uh, this message, the, the, the gist of it. And she reminded me how important Romans 6.11 has been in her life. And she gave me permission to share uh, this with you. There was a time during our uh, first four years when we were in Thailand that Christina struggled with self-doubt and pride. And many times... When anything would go wrong, even something simple like a a little burnt dinner, she would go into a self-destructive rage. She she called it, her words, uh, whacking out. She would whack out. I won't embarrass you by describing some of those incidents. I I won't embarrass her by describing some of those incidents. She believed that this sin of whacking out was out of her control. She believed there was nothing she could do to stop it. She believed she was a slave to this sin, and she continued in it. But after reading Romans 6.11 and believing and reckoning the truth of who she is in Christ, that she's dead to sin and alive to God, that she is no longer under the power and authority of sin, she said, and, and, and I experienced this, Almost overnight, the, the, the whacking out disappeared because of the truth applied in her life. There is great power in reckoning the truth of who you are in Christ. And what I want us to do this morning as we partake of communion together is to reckon the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. I want, I want to give us the opportunity to consider ourselves dead to sin, and and alive to God. So as the ushers and worship team come forward, let's begin with a, a moment of silent prayer. Use this time to prepare your heart, to confess your sin, and to, and to begin to think about this reckoning, to begin thinking about believing and committing to act based on the truth that you're dead to sin and alive to God. So take a moment of silent prayer, and then I'll begin leading us into communion.